Okay, I think we'll make a start. Uh, welcome everybody to this LSE Literary Festival event. Uh, this is Beyond the Book, New Forms of Academic Communication. And uh, thank you for joining us, uh, on your lunchtime especially. Um, we've got some really interesting speakers here today that are going to be talking about some innovative forms of academic communication. Uh, I'm Amy Mollett, and I'm the managing editor of one of the LSE's blogs, the LSE Review of Books. You can find us at lsereviewofbooks.com, and we publish book reviews by academics and PhD students of books from across the social sciences, and um, we see ourselves very much as one of the new forms of academic communication, which is something that our speakers will be talking about today. So uh, the three speakers that we have today are Miriam Bernard, Professor of Social Gerontology at Keel University. And Miriam's going to be discussing representation of ageing in drama in a drama partnership with the New Vic Theatre. Uh, Kip Jones, reader in performative social sciences at Bournemouth University. And he'll be talking us through his award-winning short film, Rufus Stone, which explores biographies of older gay and lesbian citizens in rural settings. And finally, Gareth Morris, a researcher at Salford University and a social worker. And he'll be sharing images from the graphic novels uh, that he's used to disseminate his research findings on homelessness. Uh, please feel free to tweet along. Uh, the hashtag is LSE Lit Fest. And what we'll do is hear from each of our speakers for about 10 to 15 minutes and take lots of questions uh, and comments. And we'd love to hear about some of the ways that you're uh, hopefully using innovative forms of academic communication. Uh, so our first speaker is uh, Miriam Bernard. Thank you. teach me to wear something with a pocket or a belt, won't it? <laughs> Thanks ever so much, Amy. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Um, uh, as Amy said, I'm going to talk about this particular project. Um, I'm going to spend just a very few minutes talking about that because James then asked us to talk about some of the reasons that we've adopted this kind of communication and some of the sort of risks and challenges around it. Uh, so I'm talking about um, a project which is a partnership between our university and the New Vic Theatre in Stoke-on-Trent. Uh, I sent a handout round, which is the uh, handout we produced at the very beginning of the project. Um, and it's a project that lasted three years, between 2009 and 2012. Um, and it was a, an interdisciplinary team, which I shall come back to in a moment, uh, along with the education department at the New Vic Theatre. And we were interested in the experiences of older people who were linked with the theatre and how ageing and old age had been portrayed in uh, particular productions. The place of our research in the potteries is quite important um, because the theatre has a long-standing relationship with the local community. And it's an industrial area, an area um, of heavy industry, was heavy industry, the potteries, obviously, coal, steel um, and tyres and it's gone into severe economic decline over the last few decades. The theatre um, is a theatre in the round and when it moved to its current premises in 1986 it was Europe's first purpose-built theatre in the round and theatre in the round is quite important to hang on to that notion of it being theatre in the round. Um, and we were particularly interested in what were called the social documentaries that the theatre had produced from its foundation in 1962 
under the directorship of somebody called Peter Cheeseman, who was its director for 36 years. And they produced 11 verbatim documentaries based entirely on interviews with documentary sources, people in the local community, and five what they call docudramas. Very briefly, our research programme had three strands to it. Strand one was looking at historical representations um, in the old documentaries and in the archive of the theatre, which is held at our sister university, Staffs University. And we were particularly interested, as I've said, in the documentaries. The second strand was uh, new empirical research, and we were interested and wanted to talk to four constituencies of older people. So we tracked down people who had been audience members for, for a very long time, people who were volunteers at the theatre, because a lot of the volunteers are older people, older people who are or were employees of one kind or another at the theatre, and we also tracked down some of the original source people um, from some of the original documentaries. But the strand I'm focusing on today is the third strand, which is the performance strand of our work. And in this strand, what we did was draw together the findings from the archival research and from our interview material and devise a new social documentary performance about ageing, creativity and intergenerational relationships. And we also put together something called the Ages and Stages uh, exhibition um, that was held at the theatre last summer um, because coincidentally, completely serendipitously, we didn't know about it at the time, last year was the 50th anniversary of the theatre. It was also the 50th anniversary of our university as it happens. So the exhibition ended up being a sort of celebration of 50 years, really. So strand three, the actual performance, the development of the documentary piece involved older people who we had interviewed in strand two of the project, aged between 59 and 92, and members of the New Vic's Youth Theatre, aged between 16 and 19 at the time. In total, we had a group of about 25 participants <coughs> ten of whom actually performed in the final production um, that we eventually titled Our Age, Our Stage. We also had two professional actors in the group who we had interviewed um, in Strand 2. One was retired from acting but had been the theatre's longest serving actor and the other is still working. So we had a mix of complete rank amateurs, (laughs) never set foot on stage before, plus uh, some professionals. It was a one-hour piece, devised, as I've said, through um, the materials that we'd gathered, but also through weekly workshops, which totaled 36 hours, in which we used and discussed the findings from the interviews and from the archive materials. We had an intensive two-week rehearsal period in June, and then a two-week tour to various venues uh, in July. We played to over 700 people, to mixed audiences as well as to single generation audiences and at various places including schools, a retirement village, um, to the local council in in the local uh, museum and art gallery. And then on July the 11th uh, we did a final performance on the main stage at the theatre itself in conjunction with the annual conference of the British Society of Gerontology which we were hosting at Keele last July. 
we use the history of the theatre to structure the narrative and within that to also address issues about how generations see each other and what it's like to be growing older in contemporary society. So it follows the intersection of many different people's lives over a 50-year period and the dialogue is drawn from the interviews and the workshops. We also produce composite characters speaking um, the words of several people in the interviews the piece also includes extracts heard as voiceovers from the interviews. It includes music and it includes a specially prepared short film uh, of the local area over the last 50 years. That's a very quick whiz through what we did. Let me turn now and talk just briefly about why we chose to work in this way and the benefits and difficulties of this form of communication. There's obviously masses, I could say. I'm sure we could all say masses about that. Um, but let me just talk about four reasons, really, why we chose um, this, this way of working. First is obviously the practice element. It's really important because producing a performance allowed us to communicate in different ways, allowed us to communicate... Uh, in terms of sensory, emotional, participatory, it provoked conversations, it provoked responses in the, in, in the immediate production, actually. Um, and it allowed us to show it to different audiences. So we were providing a public forum, really, where we got some immediate feedback. Um, and the event itself feeds into, and is still feeding into, the collective memory in our case, we also invited and welcomed audience participation, both during the performance and at the end in a question and answer session. And that, to us, was about signalling the importance of the community's involvement with us. So they're not passive recipients of what we were doing. They're active participants in it. So it's about sensitising the audience, both intellectually and emotionally. It was about the ideas we wanted to communicate around ageing and intergenerational relations as well as around the history of this particular theatre and its place in the local community. And because people could watch and listen rather than necessarily live the performances on stage, for some people it could also provide some necessary distance from the things that they were seeing or the issues that were being debated on stage. I guess to sum up that point, really, for us, one of the most important reasons we worked in that way was that as opposed to communicating through books or papers, the outcome was, vi was viewed, experienced and discussed collectively. And it was an opportunity to observe, to analyse, to form opinions and to hear others' opinions as well. Secondly, the other reason for us choosing to work, on, work in this way was that it facilitated an interdisciplinary approach to ageing and creativity that helped us to understand the social context and the experiences and narratives of the people that we were researching with. We are an interdisciplinary team, um, as I hope you can see from that slide. It also permitted us to develop partnerships between young and old, professionals and amateurs, experienced and inexperienced actors, academics, non-academics, researchers and non-researchers, social scientists and humanities scholars, and so on. So that for us was important. It was also important that what we did mirrored the processes, values and outcomes of the original theatre. So we have, in a sense, repeated what the company did 
to put, put together the original documentaries. They were, they were, if you like, actor researchers, the original company, and we were doing something very similar. I think the third thing it's enabled us to do is to communicate in a variety of ways. Obviously, we have the performance, we have a DVD of the performance, but we also have the exhibition materials, we have conventional academic outputs, policy paper, academic articles, a resource pack, and so on. So it's about kind of looking and thinking who are our audiences. The fourth thing for me is that as a gerontologist, it's also about what colleagues Meredith Minkler and Martha Holstein have called passionate scholarship. It's the critical part for me of being a critical gerontologist. So it's about doing research that illuminates ordinary people's lives, not necessarily the extraordinary or exceptional and it's not necessarily rooted in or focused on the problems in inverted commas of old age or ageing. So our choice to work in this way was about also contributing something back to the community. Uh, something sustainable, really. So it was about a commitment to both illuminate what was happening, to make a difference to people's lives and to, ha to end up some with something that is sustainable afterwards. Um, and we are in the middle of a, a year of what's called follow-on funding, um, which is about <coughs> new research. It's about doing translational work uh, from the research we've already done. So we're in the middle of a training course, an interprofessional training course that we're running. We're also doing um, a new production, which goes into rehearsal next week. There are risks, too, and so... I just want to flag, I guess for the discussion really, um, four or five really briefly. The first issue for us is whose truth, if you like, are we showing in a performance uh, like this? Our colleague at the theatre, Jill Rezzano, writes in our souvenir brochure that, quote, locked inside the pages of interview transcripts and film of the devising workshops are at least a dozen other plays. So what we have chosen to produce, what we have chosen to show people, is just one, one version, if you like, um, of the material, which could, of course, be disputed by people. Um, but it leads to interesting debate. Secondly, I think the risk for us in terms of thinking about a theatre, you know, thinking about a theatre performance, is that we involved volunteer participants. You know, we involved people who had not had this experience before, um, and in the event that it, you know, wasn't well received in a public forum, it wasn't just us as professionals <laughs> um, that you know, might get the flack. You know, we had we had to be cognizant of the people that we were working with. I think the third thing for me as, a, as an academic is that um, the devising and development itself is quite a risky process and it requires quite a lot of trust and faith in other colleagues. The script was compiled by Jill, but in response to team discussions, <coughs> the data, workshops and so on. But ultimately, you can't put a theatre script together by committee. You know, some, somebody somewhere along the line has got to take responsibility for it. So that, that's potentially a, a risk and a challenge. The fourth one is the, you know, to ref or not to ref question. <laughs> um, are these legitimate outputs or not for ref? 
especially for me as someone who is um, usually submitted to social policy and social work, um, you know, rather than a, a humanities unit of assessment. And I think the fifth risk I want to flag is, is this new? You know, is it a fad? Is it a fashion? You know, theatre's been around for millennia. <laughs> um, I think there is sometimes a danger, you know, when we build things as new, uh, that they may not necessarily be new. So that's me, very quickly. Um, there were handouts that went round. We did produce um, packs, some of which I think have got down to the LSA if people are interested. Um, we sent some down, so you're very welcome to take those if you want. Uh, and I look forward to discussing and debating with you afterwards. Thank you very much. Okay, and now we've got Kip Jones uh, talking us through uh, his short film project, uh, Rufus Stone, and some of the other work that he's been doing. Just ready for you on the side, thank you. Okay, great. <coughs> Hello, everybody. I'm standing in the light. <coughs> uh, basically, what I wanted to talk about today, although I'm going to end up talking about the film Rufus Stone, and I know Miriam's project, which was um, over several years, as she didn't mention how much money that was involved in funding, but uh, the Rufus Stone project involved over a quarter of a million pounds, including 50,000 of that to make the film. And so even the, the best people with the most creative ideas of how to use uh, tools from the arts in social science will go, oh dear God, how am I going to get the money to do this? So I thought today what I would, would like to bring and, and chat with you about a little bit is how performative social science started, in my, at least in my world, in my brain. Um, 12 or 13 years ago, just when I was finishing up my PhD, I was doing... Um, a presentation and it actually was on an overhead projector. Does anyone remember those? <laughs> <laughs> and it was a piece of text from an interview I had done. So I put the piece of text up, which was maybe two paragraphs, you know, to fill the, the screen. And I'm yakking on about, you know, blah, 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 blah. And someone from the very back of the room yelled out, that's poetry. And it just stopped me in my tracks. And I thought, Yes, what this woman had told me in her story was poetry, and all I was doing with it was bearing it in academic speak and possibly in a journal article. And how could I get this woman's poetry out to a wider world? And how could I engage an audience with this, this story that this woman had told me about her life? So I went back to my little bed set in Leicester. I love telling this with a violin playing. And, uh, <laughs> on my crappy computer with no, no money and no equipment and made a, a video of what the woman had really told me. I, I got some friends to do the, um, a friend to do the recording and three other friends to do, to play the parts in it. And that's the way it was put together. So I want to show this to you and it's what I call kitchen sink work. And it's very important that we all do this kind of work and I still do it. So um, we'll show you this first. Hopefully. I'm terrible at doing it. I can make films, but I can't make these things run. But I'll try. Oops, see, I did something wrong already. Where start? 
right? <laughs> Which one did you want to start with? Right, this one. Remember I can remember, yeah, but okay, when so I go up there, I close, click here. That's it, yeah. And then. Oh. Yeah. Is the sound on? Yeah, it's on. Okay. I'll turn it on a bit. I can remember the night. I can remember the night that they did split up. It was a wet night. There was a meeting in the house, my father's house, in the front room, and I can remember it so clearly. He was sitting in the armchair, in the corner. My mother, sitting in the chair near the window, and I can remember the night. I can remember the night. They was asking me who I wanted to be with, and I said, well, I want to be with both of you. I can remember it so well, and I, I was supposed to pick who I wanted to be with. I can remember the night. I think it was awful of them now. In hindsight, I think it was dreadful, and I couldn't pick. I loved them both. Oh, yes, I can remember the night. I saw my mother go out. I didn't know where she was going. I thought, oh... I shouted after her. He said nothing. He just walked out. My father then called me and he said, We are going out. I asked where the mother was and he said, She won't be coming with us. Again, ever. And that's... I can remember the night. That was the night they finally split up before the divorce. I can remember... So clearly. And I... My... My... my I don't know. I felt devastated. Oh, yes, I can remember the night. Oh, yes, I can remember the night. I can remember the night. I can remember the night that they did split up. It was a wet night. There was a meeting in the house, at my father's house, in the front room, and I can remember it so clearly. He was sitting in the armchair, in the corner. My mother, sitting in the chair near the window, and I can remember the night. Oh, yes. I can remember the night. I can remember the night. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Now, wh what I was trying to do there, from listening to lots of biographies, to people telling me their life stories, I've, I've learned over, over doing them for many years now that when people are talking about a particularly traumatic time in their life, and she was about in her late 60s talking about when she was seven or eight when she told me this story. And so something that stays with you through life in the way you look at it, uh, looking back on the past of it, is almost like the way we remember a dream, that we, we grasp onto the physicality of it. We grasp on where the people were in the room, how far they were apart from each other, what the, the weather was like, was it dark, was it light, all these sort of things come into it at, to tell the story because text enough isn't, it doesn't really tell the story. We can't just through words tell a story. We're trying to get a feeling and that's what I tried to create there was the feeling of remembering this time. And I knew right from the beginning that I wanted three chairs to represent the three characters, the mother, the father and the child. And then I wanted an interior that looked like working class 1960s England. 
And uh, so I looked all over the internet, and we had the internet back then, by the way. And um, <laughs> um, I, all I could find were stately homes and things like that, nothing 60s, until I came across, they had just redone John Lennon's house in Liverpool that he lived in with his auntie. Um, and so I thought, oh, I'll go there and I'll shoot some film, you know, it'll be great. So I got in touch with them, and they said, oh, you're not allowed to film in National Trust, trust Properties, and you can't do this, and blah, 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 blah. So then they, then they finally, I kept writing, of course, I don't give up. And um, they said, well, we've just done a wonderful set of photographs that you're welcome to use. And I said, oh, please send them to me. I didn't tell them I was going to make them negative and make them black and white and then film them on an old crappy computer with a little tiny camera and make it all jerky so it looked like video in the 1960s. But that's what I did. So that's. <laughs> but what, what, what I would say is that, you know, creativity is an incredible way to problem solve. Um, it just is a way of thinking of using the other side of your brain, really, to solve problems. So if you think of it in those terms and what you're approaching, whatever it is, to do research or to disseminate research, if you just think, I'm just thinking with a different set of tools. One of the things that came up in a, um, uh, when we had a conference, we had, I invited this photographer who did wonderful kind of documentary kind of photography to do a, do a, a presentation. And she was talking after she showed her photographs. And all the questions from the researchers were about, well, did you think about this? And did you have meetings about that? And did you... How did you possibly you know, get this to happen if, if you have to go through this process? And she said, really, was very, very poignant. She said, I pick up my camera and I start to work. And that's the difference between approaching something as an artist and approaching something as a researcher. And an artist believes that through working with tools that you find many of the answers. So you're creatively solving the problems, really. And that's what kind of, that's the shift that takes place when you move from just a standard process to a more arts-related one, um, is for in my mind anyway. Um, but what I what because we've had some success with the film we made called Rufus Stone. Um, I don't want people to be discouraged from thinking, oh well, then I can't do something because I have to have all this money and I have to have a famous director and our director did. Um, what did he do? The, Inf the Infidel with David Baddiel. He did that film, he directed that. And even we getting that director, it was, again, it was just, as Miriam knows, it's just like being really persistent and just, you know, I'm going to keep working, working, working. I'm not going to allow anyone to say, no, I'm going to make sure this gets finished and gets done. I mean, my relationship with the director started seven years ago, so... And it started by inviting him to come to a seminar and then inviting him to come to a master class and then putting, telling him I had this idea for a film. And he said, oh, well, really great. Well, when you get the money, let me know. Like, he didn't think it would ever happen. And then it was becoming part of your, I always say it's by subterfuge that we get these things done. It was like attaching this project to a larger project that was part of four universities. And then that was part of a national program. So I had to go through three years of that whole process to get before we were ever funded and sort of, you know, keep banging away that I wanted to make this film. That was part of what we wanted to do. Part of the research was to make the film in the, uh, as an output. So it takes that kind of persistence and, and commitment to what it is you want to do to do a larger 
more expensive thing, but it doesn't mean you can't do smaller work on your own with the equipment you already have. And I mean, part, partly the way that, that artists work is if they're compelled to do a drawing and they don't have the exact piece of drawing paper that they want to do this drawing, they will take anything and do it. Even writers like Jack Kerouac wrote on the road on basically a roll of, of shelving paper. And he just wrote it all continually, you know, and everyone thinks, oh, that's so creative and cool that he did that. He probably did that because that's what was available to him at the time. So it's about not, not letting things get in your way to be, to be creative in, in the outputs you want to do and the things you want to do. Um, I'll show you a little bit of, I'll show you, I'm going to show you, the, you're not going to get to see the film because it's a half hour, um, but I'll show you the, the trailer for the film. And the trailer film for the film was made after the film was made. And it was made with uh, Trevor Hearing and I, who's, who's, I'm working with him on his PhD, and he teaches in the media school. And we've done several projects together, so we, and we edit together, and I love editing. So, um, <laughs> and he listens to me. <laughs> so, those are all good things. Um, so, um, I did this, and this is the first time in a long time that I've looked at this one I've just shown you in the trailer together. And after I show you the trailer, I want to ask you a question of, can you see what the similarities are between the two. So I'll show you this one. And where is my, oh, there you are. I knew you'd be right there, you see. Thank you.
We'll skip all the trailer stuff in then. Soon to be at your local theater. So that's basically all I have to say. Uh, when we have the time for you to chat, we can talk more about your feelings about what you've seen and your what you've been working on and hopefully what you'd like to work on. So thanks. Uh, so now finally we've got Gareth Morris, uh, who's going to be talking us through the graphic novels that he's been uh, used yeah. to disseminate his research. Good afternoon, everybody. Hiya. Hiya. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I've brought a prop, which is the product of our labours. It's called Somewhere Nowhere, Lives of Art Homes. It's a graphic novel about homelessness. It was the research, it was a, an output of our research project. Um, on the slides is going to be the story of Billy. There's five stories in the book. Um, one of them is uh, a chap called Billy, who's in his early 20s when I met him in 2003 and interviewed him. Every story put in, we gave a title, and Billy's is called um, Should Have Been Me. Billy was, um, it's, you know, it's all based on narrative interviews. So I interviewed about 100 people, tell me your life story kind of thing, and, and let's sort of unpick it. All people who were homeless at the time when I met him. Billy was uh, had a the broken childhood, if you like. He says, you know, his parents broke up, and he felt excluded in his in his family. And then he he went to school, and he felt excluded in school because he didn't have the same things that people had, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He couldn't wait to grow up and join the army, and that's what Billy did. Um, when he joined the army, um, he he. He, he was actually, uh, we, we anonymized it in this, in this story to try to protect his identity, but, but he, was, he, was, he, was a, he was a sniper, and he, he, he was put in and, and given this training. It was the first time in his life that Billy would actually gained any respect from anybody. He, it was the first time in his life he really uh, noticed he had a skill and he had a talent. And in the story, he talks about how um, people knew his name, people knew who he was, and this was, this was great. This is like the sort of highlight and a turning point in, in, in Billy's life, you know, this is, this is the first time that people ever really gave him any respect. He went off to Iraq, and he was um, supposed to get in the, they call them the snatches, like the 4 by 4s to go out in. He was supposed to get in the second one. He went off, nipped off to the toilet, came back, missed it, as you do, got in the third one. The snatches went off. The first one triggered something. Uh, which um, then uh, triggered an explosion of the second one went over it, which meant that the people came out and were killed or maimed. And Billy knew that this should have been him, you know, thereby giving the, the story of the, the, the thing we gave him. He, he knew that that was where he was supposed to be, and, it, and that's what he saw. That's, the, that's what happened to his friends. Um, he was, you know, greatly affected by this. He, he, he came home, he got some compassionate leave. He came home back to Stoke where we did the research. Um, he had a lot of money in the, in the bank, as a lot of people do when they, when they go off on tour. They're earning lots of money. They're not getting to spend it in while they're off in Iraq or Afghanistan. Ten grand in the bank, uh, went out and spent it and got into using drugs. He was disturbed by his experiences. He, would, he wanted to escape and 
and that's what he got into. He had to go back and finish off his duties, and he decided that he would um, make sure he was discharged from the army by using illicit substances, because he knew it was the only way he could get out, and he got dishonorably discharged. Um, He came home, continued to use drugs, struggled with employment. He ended up in the YMCA, uh, where I met him, and uh, the last sort of thing that came up in his story was it was, an, it was an older policy, the future jobs funds, where there was some money available to help him get a job at a council um, picking a bit of litter and that, and that was Billy's story um, really nice guy lo- lovely story and it, to me it's, it's a fascinating tale, I don't know how you guys feel about that but to me it's very very interesting very emotional and this was what we would call you know, what we think of as people who are homeless, this guy you go out and you do research like this and you realise there's a whole lot more to people and what gets them to this, to this place that we call <coughs> homelessness and what do we do about the homeless problem and homeless people and aren't, and aren't they terrible. And then you can kind of see um, what's gone on before it. So, so this is what the project was about. I interviewed a, about 100-odd people over six months going around the hostels in, in Stoke-on-Trent meeting people and, and hearing these fascinating tales of... Uh, uh, of what happens sometimes sort of three or four times a day when I was working through my interviews. And it's from this stage, like, really early on when I felt like it was like, it was like narrative gold. I mean, I was just fascinated by it. I was going home, I was going back to the office with my work colleagues and trying to explain to them what I'd learned about these people's lives. And it was actually only later on when they started to analyse the transcripts, they started to see where I was coming from. And I felt this was just really rich and, and really powerful. And, and over the time I was doing it, I was really, I suppose, myself just quite... Um, sort of um, affected by what was going on and felt that was, this is really worth retelling. We can't, you know what you do with interview transcripts? You analyse them and you, you sort of generalise them. You try and write something and say a whole bunch of things about a bunch of people and lose all those things that are important about what's actually happened to people. And I felt that we, we needed to find a way to, to tell these stories as people had told them to us and tell them from their perspective as well. That's a whole cliche about giving people a voice. Well, it's just maybe it's just another way of doing that. So this is, I guess, this is where it started. It was this desire to to retell these stories so people, more people could 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 learn about us and see see what um, how they got to where they were and the challenges they were faced with and the challenges that the services are faced with to support them. Um, so that that was a, a key reason, really. Um, Another way of choosing a graphic novel is just to try and engage a non-academic audience as well. Um, so we just wanted to make it more accessible and, and, again, to inform people and educate people, if you like, about, about what happened and, uh, and, what, and what people were doing. Um, and it, was, it, was a, it wasn't planned. You know, you, sometimes you don't... When you start a research project, you don't always know what you're going to find and what you're going to do. I think it was only when we started to do this, and I don't even remember where the idea came from, I just remember talking to my colleague and saying, why don't we think about you know, doing a graphic novel and, and see how it goes? And they thought, oh, that's a nice, interesting idea. Um, one of my colleagues found a book called Psychiatric Tales, written by a bloke called Daryl Cunningham, and this guy, had, he wasn't a researcher, but he'd worked on psychiatric wards, and he did a, like a graphic novel explaining about things like dementia and schizophrenia and depression, and we'd seen this book, and it was, so, it was so good, and it was so compelling. And we just knew there and then that if we could do something similar with homelessness, we could actually, that this would work, and we really believe this would be a very powerful thing to do. Um, 
And we wanted to we wanted to try and work with the homeless sector because we had a project advisor. We had the people who ran the services working with us on the project throughout it. We wanted to try and give them something that they could use, um, whatever that may be. So it was an experiment. We didn't we just didn't know. It's part of being an academic, isn't it? I think you just got to try something sometimes and see how it goes, learn from it, and then come and tell people about it. And that's one thing we wanted to do is try and give them something that they might be able to use. And I think, finally, one of the reasons for doing it was, I think, personally, I was was just very driven by, you know, uh, like the stereotype about academics and we don't do anything useful for society. We sit in ivory towers, thinking brilliant thoughts, and we we don't relate to the outside world. It's just a... It's a horrible stereotype, and it's one that I always very strongly objected to. I mean, how can creating knowledge ever be not useful you know maybe we don't always have the will and maybe we don't always have the means of communication but it is useful and we do have to I felt very strongly I wanted to do something about that and show that we could that we did have something to offer and we can do it and that was guiding me on a personal level and giving me that that motivation Um, at the same time we're doing this I was doing the blogs homelessandstoke.com look it up I was doing. I was reading things like a, I don't know if you ever read a book called Presentation Zen. It's the whole idea of don't do bullet points anymore. Use pictures when you're doing your presentations, that kind of thing. And I started to sort of this idea of visuals was gathering momentum in my mind about how we communicate information to people in in all sorts of different ways. And it was then I was just really thinking that this was going to be a more powerful way of trying to communicate with people because. It just seems to me that no matter how educated and intelligent people are, everybody likes a nice picture. They really do. It always works. In every format you get to communicate. Just use pictures. Um, so, so, the benefits of doing it. Um, I think, that if it, I think in, we, we met our objectives in a way. We, we, did, we did find a way of doing it. We chose the five stories. We have been able to tell these stories from these people's point of view. We we wrote it in the first person. It's not 100% exact. I had to be a little bit creative to make sure all the... You could get the words in, but you could tell the story from that person's point of view um, and and, and give them that side of the story. And and the people who have read it, which is not as much as I'd like, I'd like more people to read it, but the people who have, have been very positive about it. People you wouldn't expect would come back to you and actually start talking to you about about it, about the issues that, that were going on in these people's lives. And that was and then you started to realise you know it was, it was appealing to people, and it also made people want to know more about the research on a wider uh, scope as well. Because if you've got something, it's like a hook, you know, if you can use something attractive and appealing like this as a hook and reel people in, you can tell them more about the project and more about what you know what else you're doing as well. You just, it's just giving you something to start with. Um, right. Um, it gave us opportunities to present the research in different ways as well. Like Kip was saying earlier about text, it's looking beyond text. There was um, a homeless film festival that was on tour and that had a, there was a static exhibition. So we put images up and it was in a local pub in Salford with other people who were doing images around homelessness and paintings and, and what have you, and we could contribute to that. Um, there's, um, I don't know if anybody here is an, a member of the BPS, but the psychologist, their monthly magazine, thank you. in the February issue, 
there was a centre spread of, uh, of this as well. So it's just a way of getting out to that audience. There's an organisation called Homeless Link. They're the umbrella organisation for all the homeless organisations in, in the UK. And they used a lot of the images throughout one of their copies. So it was just trying to tell all the people in the homeless sector that we've done this and, you know, come, come to us. This is something you want to use. So it just opens up different af- avenues than you could use if you were just relying on, on the written word. Um, and we did find out that the people we worked with in Stoke as well, those services did use um, copies of the book to supplement funding bids for some of the projects that are around. So that was a useful output from it. Um, and another thing, just on a very practical level, um, I can't draw to save my life. I'm no illustrator. We hired a guy called Sam, and to be fair, I came up with the idea and I facilitated doing the book, but he did all the legwork. He, you know, he deserves a lot of credit for what he did. We didn't pay him as much as he deserved because he did a whole much more work than he, than he, than he, than he really needed to. Um, but he, he actually spread the workload, so we, we were starting this and getting on with it, but he was sort of doing it, and he was making progress, and we were sort of meeting him later, and, and he had sort of moved on, in a way. So it's actually, if, you've, if there are other people in the university or that, you can, that you can draw in and share that workload, you can actually get other things done by working, working in that way in bigger teams. Um, to, uh, if you talk about the difficulties, the real, real big problem and the real issue, and, and the, this, the real one regret I have is marketing and promoting it has been difficult. It has been difficult. Um, like I say, we, 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 we had a, uh, a dissemination event in Stoke where we invited all the people to come. We gave them all copies of the book. We sent them to uh, top people in the homelessness sector and a few of the policy type people as well like Grant Shapps who was a housing minister at the time just yeah. people who we could think of it we just let's just belt it out there and see how it goes but you, do, you need a better marketing strategy than what we had we just did what we could what we knew if I was to do it again and I would recommend doing something like this if somebody wanted to but really just spend a bit more time thinking about how you would promote it and if I, if I was to do it again I'd go back into the university and find somebody who was enthusiastic and wanted an opportunity to try and get involved and promote something like this. This is what we did with the illustrator. He just finished his master's. He was really enthusiastic about doing it. Could we find somebody else who with the marketing skills, the knowledge, who wanted the opportunity to try it? If I was to do it again, that's what I would do. Um, and I think just the other difficulty is, is how do you push something like this once a research project's finished? This, we published this, so we self-published on a, I don't know if you've ever heard of Lulu, it's a self-publishing website, that's how we did it. It's available on Amazon as well, if you, if you want to buy it. Um, um, you, you finish the project, the project officially finished then in July, I left post, who's there to pick up and do it? We'd done this, we had some enthusiastic feedback, had all these brilliant ideas about, you know, could we make films, could we do plays... The, the narrative is so rich and so varied and there's so much of it it's just a gold mine waiting to be done and there's no more opportunity to do anything more with it and then, and then what do you do, it just finishes it just ends and that's quite, quite sad and just the last point I want to make in conclusion is, and again relating to something uh, Kip said it's about, I think the reason we do this and what's underpinning it all is that we, as academics, you're trained to think intellectually. Intellectual rigour, you're, t- you're trained to think logically. 
And this is what we do in writing, and we try to we try and give a logical argument to things. And I think what we actually need to do is think about how we can affect people on an emotional level. And maybe that's why we draw on arts, and we draw on the you know these sort of creative methods as well, is because we actually need to try and communicate with people on a different level than we than we used to. And I think that is really what is at the basis of all of all what we're doing. And and how much potential is there to do that? And that's it. That's the end. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you, Rim, uh, Kip, and Gareth. What we'll do now is take uh, some questions and comments from the audience. Uh, we've got some roving mics, I think. Yep. Uh, so just wait for those to reach you and uh, tell us your name and where you're from. And we'll probably take two or three questions at a time. Uh, anybody want to start us off? Yeah? Oh, just wait for the mic. Wait. That's great. Thanks. See the shiny thing. See how shiny that is. I hate talking to you like this. Um, yeah, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to come down to speak to us. I'm just doing uh, third year law in Austin. And I'd like to ask um, whether these new forms of academic education have sort of um, impacted your academic reputation. Because I understand that in academia, you need a lot of publishing and you know, there's a lot of publishing pressure. So, so how has like, making films, doing graphic novels impacted on your academic uh, okay, we can, we can take a couple of questions at a time. Has anybody else got a Yeah, go back. I'm Paul from LSE. First of all, thank you for all these presentations. They're fantastic and they really opened my eyes. And I think my questions concern with all these presentations. And I'm trying to ask you from your opinion. Um, what is the uh, features that can distinguish um, this uh, theoretical performance, uh, films and uh, comic books uh, being presented today as uh, research funding as opposed to uh, uh, conventional like films, uh, comic books and uh, theatre uh, performance? Because I imagine it would be difficult to convey such a message the public, what it is uh, being uh, presented uh, in such a visual uh, format. For example, I read uh, comic books every day, and uh, how can I know, for example, if I pick up a comic book, and uh, after reading several pages, I realize this is research funding, this is serious stuff, and uh, it is not for entertainment or anything. So I'm just uh, interested in, uh, in, this, uh, in this point. Thank you. So a question about academic reputations and a question about how do we tell the public that these things have an academic background? Anybody want to start us off? I'd say don't tell them it's an academic background. <laughs> don't avoid it. Do you, don't, do you need to do that? Is that necessary? Maybe the research funders would like you to do that. Um, I don't know. Is that, I don't know. Is that important? Well, I suppose... With uh, Somewhere Nowhere, the, the point was to maybe change people's opinions about homeless mm. people and experiences, maybe. So, maybe not. Maybe you don't need to. Uh, 
I think, I think what, in a sense, you get funded for a research project and you've got to meet a certain criteria. And I think in the, probably in all the projects we've been involved in, you do that. You write your papers, you do your conference presentations, someone writes the impact report saying, yes, we've done all that, etc. We didn't have to do a graphic novel. We did this because we really wanted to do it and really wanted to try it. So in, a, in that sense, it's a, it's a nice bonus. It's, it's an addition. But personally, <coughs> and this probably ties into the thing about academic reputation... <laughs> Um, I, I, I feel personally I, I, I just feel more fulfilled in doing something down this route it's great getting an article published it's great going to give a conference presentation but I feel really fulfilled and I feel this is really important that, that we do this and uh, you know uh, maybe that doesn't meet the, 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 the expectations other people might have of me but it, but it might my own so that's Lynn did you have well, on both, on both of those questions, um, I suppose unlike Gareth, f- for us, the theatre performance was always going to happen. You know, I mean, it, mm. it was written into the... You know, it wasn't a bonus in that sense. Um, that was always our intention. So, yeah, they did fund it, <laughs> I suppose, is what... You know, knowing that that was going to be the case. Um, the exhibition was slightly different to how we'd envisaged that. Um, we do tell people that it's based on research. Um, <coughs> in the resource pack, we, we produced what we call a souvenir brochure, um, which is, twen- is a 20-page brochure, which in a sense tells the story of the research and tells the story of the development of the performance. Um, and so we gave those out to everybody. So, so you, know, if they, you know, like you have a programme when you go to the theatre. I mean, that's effectively what it was. Um, so that was quite important for us. The point about reputation, this is probably heretical, but I guess personally, I'm at a point in my career... <laughs> you have to swear to say that. <laughs> With older people, um, you know, I moved into my, I haven't been, a, you know, from, I been a career academic throughout my adult life. So um, it was important to me. That that for me is about hanging on to the values and the things that you believe in about work with people. And I don't see why research needs to be removed from the people that you're researching with. Mm. So that was important for me. I am also a very odd interdisciplinary person, so I have a first degree in English literature and geography. Um, So for me, moving between arts and humanities has been something I've always done and always been interested in, so that wasn't an issue for me. Um, And the issue about kind of um, connections with people, this didn't cut, ours didn't come out of the blue. This came out of a long-standing connection I had with the theatre. We'd done a very small project back in 2004-2005 with a very tiny amount of funding, like £3,000, that we'd produced a small performance piece, a bit like Kit was saying about you know, producing the first video you know, with his friends in the, <laughs> in yep. the backyard almost. Um, so there's something about building up relationships uh, and building up connections for us as well. 
But reputation-wise, I don't know. We'll see what happens with the ref, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> whether, whether, whether we get to have it counted or not. But it doesn't bother me, actually, whether we do or we don't. And Kit, do you have any thoughts? Well, one thing that I like is that Quikipedia on Twitter, which is Stephen Fry, and you have to believe it because he's a national treasure, <laughs> um, stated that uh, the average is three readers of any academic journal article in the world. Three readers. And someone said, yeah, one of them's your mother, probably. <laughs> so... Um, that's really and that's really depressing, particularly if you've spent several years and a lot of your own energy and time doing a research project, and then to realize that no one's ever going to know about it, and it's just going to end up on a shelf or in a journal, which is probably worse than a shelf. So what do you do about that? And then you start looking at what other ways can I get this, this um, you know, hard work out there to a wider public? What, and then you start looking at what is the public I want to reach and then you start looking at and what means do I have available to me to reach that public so it's all about that kind of journey you know, in your mind away from saying that I will say for having written about performative social science for about about eight years since seriously that I, I still write in journal articles and fight with journal editors mostly and get do the publications because we're not at this stage where the work can just stand on its own if it's a, a, a discrete output. It, in, um, if you're in an academic setting, you also need to be shoring it up, as it were, with that kind of background stuff. And also that's the kind of stuff that even people who are very interested in doing this kind of work, oh, do you have an article that you've written about that? They want to read, read about it. So, so I do both, which means twice as much work, quite frankly, and then fighting with journal editors, which is the third job. Let's take a couple more questions. Yeah, sure, the front row, these two. I'm going to, I think, possibly break the rules slightly because I'm not an academic, I'm a practitioner, and I'd like to be in dialogue rather than just Q&A. Um, and just respond to some of your points about impact and whether people want to know that it's an academic based on academic research. And the answer is a resounding yes. There's a huge appetite out there in the public for what you guys are saying. And I'm not the only one academic in the room. And we are really desperate. There are smart people out there who can give you a 40 page, funded stuff, but they really will, and then try and fight <coughs> it. Um, and so anything you can do to open up to that sort of different types of communication is incredibly valuable and I think will enhance in the end your academic reputation. On the ref, as a practitioner who's been paying attention to that quite ivory tower conversation, I think, um, I'm told that, and I'm pretty sure, that many people don't really know what impact is going to look like and a lot of universities are letting the students lead. So it's up to us in the room in PhD applications and all the rest of it to say, this is where I think the impact will be, this is what the people are interested in, and that will set the really the, the bar for what impact mm. and reputation will be in the future. Thank you. Thank can, you. I, can I just ask something? In, in your view then, is, is it more important the, the academic, the traditional academic stuff or, or the alternative methods? Do you, do you value one more than the other or both? 
got to have both. It's both. got to be okay. really intelligent and mm. rigorous and respected and then communicated well. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's got to look decent. <laughs> I suppose that was the thing for us. And we will read it. Yeah. We will read those articles if we can get all of them. Mm. I'll send you a list. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for wonderful presentations. Um, just, uh, my name is Charlotte Tudinus. Um, my background is medical, um, but I've been working with uh, artistic or creative representations of professional medical lives. Um, I also convening a forum for researchers from mul multiple disciplines uh, at Cambridge University researchers who are working with the arts and, through, and communicating through the arts. My question is about representation of the data. I'm a researcher um, in heart. I'm also extremely creative, but um, I, I have the struggle to um, come to terms with myself, I guess, about representation of data. Both Kip and you, Miriam, have, have talked about choosing this one story, and you could have chosen others, but you chose this one where we, as researchers, are used to giving a sort of a frame for the audience. Um, these are the conditions, this is how you are to understand what you're going to see or read. Um, and we are, as researchers, um, very good at describing the, the, the spectrum of multiple and different kinds of, of lives lived out there. When we then go into something like films, you have to choose one story in order to engage the audience mm. um, and for me there is a, a clash or a, a dilemma um, when, when I'm working in this way of how to both be the researcher who is showing the, the breadth of lived lives at the same time as engaging the, an audience in mm. the one story which mm. we want to, to, to talk about. And I was wondering if you could talk about, a bit about how you are managing that as, as researchers and, and creative people. I'd like to respond to that if I could. Um, in the film Rufus Stone, I was really, really very, very careful that everything in, in the plot and the characterization is based in the research. And it's not based on one story. It's based on many stories. And they're composite characters built from the many stories that we listen to. And particularly on the plot t twists and turns in the film, every major plot turn is based on at least three different people's stories. So there's consistency across those stories of what we're telling. In other words, we didn't say, uh, well, someone got in trouble for having a platonic relationship when they were a teenager. And that maybe only happened in one story, so I'm going to tell that story. It happened in three or four stories, long stories that I have. And every story had similar outcomes where you know, they were pilloried, threatened with imprisonment, threatened with the police, all kinds of things that happened to them. So that's why that plot turn is in the story, because we were hearing it over and over and over again. At the same time, during the time we were making the film, and we were working with an advisory group of older people, mostly gay and lesbian people, um, that we heard four stories of contemporary suicides of people who had committed suicide, because they were either outed in their community or their family or uh, some sort of thing, story like that. And this was so compelling that these stories kept coming into us as a group 
that we felt that this had to be told. And then, and then when we would go to groups of, you know, uh, reasonable adults, in quotation marks, and we would say, that, did you realize there was a lot of suicide amongst older gay and lesbian people, in, particularly in rural settings? They'd say, well, for their generation, that may be true. And I'd say, for their generation, have you heard of the campaign that is worldwide that's called It Gets Better? It's about teenagers committing suicide because they're outed. So it's not just about uh, a small group of old people who don't really matter anyway, living in a rural setting. It's a very, very, very contemporary problem. It's across all ages. So, you know, there's this, there's this kind of, this, this need almost to minimize something that's not, not pleasant. You know, this isn't a very pleasant topic and it's not a very pleasant part of the story. But it can't be minimized, you know, and that needed to go forward. Second part of my kind of response to your question is that if you're combining disciplines and you're using the arts and sciences together, then you're, you're true to your discipline. And within your science, there's a discipline. And, and as long as you're being, for instance, I'm a qualitative researcher and a biographer, if I'm being true to that, the principles of that in, in, in replicating whatever I'm trying to tell, then I'm, I, I feel comfortable as a researcher. But I can't just say, I'm going out to make art now. Oh, I wonder if this has to do with, you know, the whole world of science. Well, no, it doesn't, <laughs> you know, probably. So do you see the difference? In other words, if, you, if, you're, if you're being true to your own discipline within that work, I think that's, that's good enough, actually. Sorry for being so, but I'm very... Can I, 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 I accept what Kip says, and, and, I, and it may have been a misunderstanding from what I said, but like Kip, ours wasn't just a story. It was one version of you know, the material that we had. So it wasn't just one person's story. Um, and a bit like Kip's described, this is going to sound really boring. <laughs> we used Envivo. <laughs> uh. <laughs> to, I mean, you know, we were doing the kind of conventional. <laughs> and, uh, I used the wheat as the royal wheat. Yes, with um, other people. <laughs> <I would. laughs> um, but while we were doing, well, we did, we did various things. We, we, we were doing that to look at, you know, the sort of common themes through the data. We also, as a group, met once a month to look at a particular. Um, set of you know research findings that were coming out and debate and discuss it we would then take quotations from <coughs> those analyses and in our devising workshops with our group we would present them with those and we would debate and discuss those to kind of generate you know reactions to and more dialogue around so for us it was an iterative process between the research data conventionally analyzed if you like uh, you know, and then what came out in terms of a production, but we we were trying to do these two strands really. The, the, the sort of holding um, structure of the piece, if you like, is telling the his, is telling the story of the theatre from its inception in 1962 to its anniversary last year. So that was the holding structure. But within that, we wanted to tackle issues about how older people. <coughs> Are represented and portrayed. What are the what are the relationships like between the generations? How do different generations view one another? You know, what were particular um, issues around aging? 
what did people think about their futures? Because the other thing for us was what we were interested in wasn't just retrospective reminiscence. You know, what we were doing was not reminiscent theatre. Um, it was about people's lived experiences, but also about what their futures might be about, whether they were our younger people or whether they were our older people. Um, so it's Kip's right. It's about remaining true to your, you know, kind of analytical and research disciplines as well. Mm. We didn't suddenly you know, throw all the data <laughs> into the air and then pull out particular bits at random. And we had composite, you know, whilst it might look like it was one person's story at one point, actually the dialogue is made up of you know, stuff from other people. And I said we had voiceovers as well. So that multiplied the voices you could hear, the people you could hear telling <coughs> their stories as well. Take a couple more questions. Uh, I think we've got one on the other side. Yeah. Um, incidentally, I um, I uh, I'm, I'm doing my I'm, I'm a master's student in the LSE, and I um, uh, I was in talks. I mean, I'm still in talks with my friend who's um, studying at Cardiff. I mean, I think Nottingham Trent. But I talk about taking it back home when we go, do go back home, which is like at the end of this year, and putting up a play with our combined efforts because it so happens that she needs to create a kind of um, a, a script, a play, a script, a drama script, which she wanted to theme according to what I've been doing, just because we've been talking for so long that we thought we could make it. I mean, at least we're trying to make it a really interdisciplinary effort with the, the creativity and I've done a bit of I've done the theatre about myself at home so we thought we were in circles but quite the first we could come up with a pretty responsible um, production. But we're already like it's, it's so hard just the two of us negotiating the creativity with the communication of the pieces, being the you know, taking precedence one over the other, the talks, they're already so intense. We were thinking that the more people that get involved in the production as such, if we were to like recruit a director, if we were to get cast members, like you said, engaging cast members in the thesis might be a good way to work around this. But, you know, I've done this before. Like my father does a lot of this and then he collaborates with other people and they put up plays. But a lot, a lot is lost during negotiation. Do you know what I mean? might have been trying to communicate in the first place. So, uh, would you know how to work around, I mean, would you have any ideas, as to any experience that you can recount about working around these negotiations that take place from producers, be it sponsors, be it um, directors, be it um, publishers? In okay, let's take another question, uh, we've got about 10 minutes left, so let's get to uh, yeah, gentleman in the middle. Um, hi, I'm a third-year management student, and I uh, heard a question from our law uh, colleague here, which made me think about law. Weird. Anyway, um, and its implications, and the question that I want to ask you, um, it happens, um, so I'm thinking, usually when you publish a paper, and you have a, a very rigorous um, system of referencing, uh, whereas if you choose to do an alternative method of communication, uh, that could be on the question. So I'm wondering whether you have any issues with intellectual property, copyright that have come up 
and this new method that you're using and how you dealt with them. So a question about making the most of negotiation and collaboration about copyright and intellectual property. I like stories. I'll tell you a story in response which may or may not mean anything to you. We had a PhD student who was, um, she was driven to make this play, was part of her PhD thesis. Driven, I mean really driven. And she had her supervisor, and she was using a phenomenological approach and they were pulling her towards, you know, concentrate on that part of it. And she was, she was working between America and Britain too, so flying back and forth, drinking big, huge Coca-Colas the whole time. And, um, she was determined that she was going to make this, and she brought me in as an advisor to sort of answer a question like you have, kind of the same area. And I suggested to her, you know, she was having problems because she needed to go to the theater, and she needed to get a director, and she needed to have costumes, and she needed to have this, and she needed to have this, and this was all in Texas, and she was in England, and blah, 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 and they're going phenomenology, phenomenology, <laughs> you know, in her ear. And um, I suggested to her, quietly and calmly, I said, you know, you could always write it first as a radio play, and then you write a script, and it's a radio play, and you get people to play the parts, but you won't need a theater, and you won't need costumes. Well, no, she was going to do this play, and blah, blah, blah. Now, the good news is she did eventually do the play, put on the production, and make a video of it, which I suggested to her. She was just going to put on this play, and it was going to go into the ether, and no one would ever have a record of it. And I said, are you going to at least video that? Oh, maybe I should do that. So she did that, and I watched it. And the truth of the matter was, not only was she the star, and every scene was her, but she had a costume change about every three seconds. <laughs> and all this budget for costuming was obviously for her, so <laughs> to buy all these clothes. So, but my advice was to do a radio play as, as a beginning, you know. But obviously no one was going to see her or the costumes on the radio, so there you go. That's, that's my response. <laughs> I think for us, I, I wouldn't pretend it was easy. I suppose one of the things that I had done was our partner at the Vic, who's head of education at the Vic, was an applicant on the original research proposal. She's a co-investigator. Um, so it's joint owned in that, in terms of you know, the, the, the issue about intellectual property. The script um, and what we did is owned by the project. You know, it's our intellectual property. Uh, it doesn't belong just to the, th just to the university or just to the theatre. It's, it's, it's jointly owned. And I suppose in, uh, in answer to your question, the, the other thing for us was the thing I alluded to, which is about trust, really. <laughs> um, and it goes against the grain, I think, for some academics to let go of that control. Um, I suppose if I'm being perfectly honest, I didn't let go of it completely. <laughs> um, I didn't know what the end, you know, I mean, you have to have trust and faith that the end product will be worth <laughs> all of that process. But I had no idea what the end product would look like, how long it would be, what it would be about, other than, you know, it was going to be something about ageing and intergenerational relations. Um, I just think you have to be fairly hands-on. 
and not relinquish the control entirely. You know, I mean, some research projects where you get big things like Kip and I have been involved in, you know, you're very, if you're the principal investigator, as I was the project lead, you can get quite divorced from actually what's going on. That isn't how I work. So for me, it was important to be there. I was at all the workshops, I was at all the rehearsals, I was at all, you know, part of the development, really. But I would have said a radio thing as well in answer because I have yeah. some other... No, I have some other colleagues elsewhere who recently did that in terms yeah. of um, a, a medical health-related project, actually. And you still get everything you... You know, as far as what you're putting into it, it's still all there. It's just a different output. On, on the copyright thing, um, uh, again, our, our film is copyrighted by the university. owns the copyright, which I'm really great, glad of in most cases because... We were working with a film production company, and that's a whole different world, and I didn't know that world very well. And I wanted to be sure that, you know, it was our money, it was the university's money ultimately, and the research councils. And I wanted to be sure that we were protecting that money, that investment. And interestingly, when we got to the point of the post-production, the producer, who was a thrill scatterbrain anyway, came to me and said, oh, we need some, uh, two or three thousand more pounds to do post-production, so I'm going to go out and raise the funds for that. And I said, if you go out and raise the funds for that, then the people who give you that money own part of the film. And I said, you can't do that. Now, fortunately, I had learned enough about film production to know that they always come at, back to you after the film is finished and they have to go into post-production, and they've run out of money. So I had secretly kept 3,000 pounds hidden. And I said, tell you what, I'll find the money for you. <laughs> so I did. And the other thing I did was I kept a little bit of money aside because I wanted to have a cast party because I've never had a cast party. And that was the only reason, <laughs> to tell the truth. So we had a huge cast party in this Art Deco hotel with food and drink and swimming pool and music and it was great. And I spent lots of money on it, and I was really glad of it. And I kept the money aside for that, too. Because I thought, I'll never have a chance to have a cast party again in my whole life, so I want to have one. And plus, everyone who worked on that film worked for no money at all. I mean, they just, the pittance. And they worked really, really hard. It was, we shot for a week, and 46 people cast and crew. So, a lot of people. Um, Gareth, you said, uh, I've written down a quote here, you were talking about getting narrative gold when you were interviewing people. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And were there any sort of collaborative barriers? Like, what was it like working with? I don't think we had any real collaboration problems. I mean, what we did is we had these, little, you know, long transcripts, and I just wrote a synopsis of the people we chose. We wanted to represent people of different ages, genders, people who had different experiences. Wrote a synopsis for them, discussed them with the illustrator. He just went off and just got on with it. And the only problem we had was we were saying, Luke, just make up about eight pages each and he wanted to do more, you know. <laughs> so we must tell this bit, we must do that. I say, look, no time, think of your own time and think of yourself, you know. And, and that was probably the only thing that we had a problem with. But apart from that, there wasn't any issues around that. We did, we did trust each other and we, we just got on with it. People knew what their jobs were. Um, in terms of the, um, the sort of... Uh, 
so the, sorry, the copyright, if you don't like it, can I just sort of um, yeah. just show this in? Sorry. <laughs> so interesting, isn't it? It's available on Amazon. Um, when you self-publish, I don't know if anyone's tried this on Lulu or CreateSpace. Has anybody ever tried self-publishing yet? Yeah, right. They do give you some information about writing a copyright page. So I just took a lot of this off something else I'd seen. So it's copyright, 2012, authors, blah, blah, blah. Blah, 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 and then it ends. But, you know, you can find this anywhere. It was one of those things you think, well, what do you do and how does it work? But I think if you write it all on, it just means it's copyrighted to you. And so far, there hasn't been any court cases about it, so we're all quite happy. Um, in terms of our interview transcripts, now, this is a different issue because it's a publicly funded research project, therefore owned by the public, so it will be, they will all be publicly available, and I am led to believe it. it's all been anonymised by my colleagues since I've left, and I think there's an embargo on it for about 18 months. But in time, that will all become publicly available, so you can... I would imagine you could go to the SRC website and get all the interviews uh, that were generated from that. And if you think that you want to write a graphic novel or a book from all those interviews or a play or anything, I would love to see that, and I would gladly hand that over and see what somebody else could do with it. I'm not precious about it. Our data is, and I guess pictures as well, with the quality data archive. No, ours isn't. Well, we made the mistake, and I'm really glad of it, that um, we used an old NHS um, uh, agreement with the participants that said that it would all be destroyed in three years. So when they came for the data, I said, sorry, can't have it. And in a way, I felt that because the stories we told them was mostly were... Uh, very, very personal, and you can really easily identify the people if you know anything about them at all. I mean, because the people moved around from town to town and stuff like that, and you can, it's really difficult to anonymize that, all that information, that it could easily be picked up by somebody who, who wanted to, you know, these are people who live in small villages, and our whole project is about people who are hidden, in, hide their sexuality because they live in a small village. So, to put it in a public archive just would be crazy, really. They would be just looking for trouble. So it's not going there, but I'll probably get more messages back about that. <laughs> yeah. uh, we've got time for final two, so let's take these two. Uh. Um, yeah, I was just going to say, um, uh, in connection with what this lady was saying here in front, um, that you know, any, any kind of research output uh, whether it's you know, a rigorous journal article or a short film, is only ever a version of events. You know, it's, you know, even if it's supposedly rigorous, it's still mm. shot through the researcher's mm. agenda, assumptions, values, and all the rest of it. So mm. I think it is just a question of uh, reframing the way we output things and get really getting used to the idea of um, multimodal representation, and it's just normal. You know, it's more relevant to what audience expectations, more relevant to a wider <coughs> group of audiences. Um, and, yeah, that's what I'm into. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Sure. Uh, yeah, and thanks very much. Brilliant session. Really, really, really enjoyed it. I'm very interested in my work as an independent freelance knowledge transfer person, so really interested in what you're talking about. And um, I am sitting here living in hope that... Because you guys are using creative methods, some of your peers and colleagues within your universities are doing so as well as a result of 
a kind of knock-on viral impact, and I just wanted, wondered if that's the case or if you are still... Yeah, from my perspective, you're incredibly novel in what you're doing, but is it spreading? Are other people doing it as well? What can we do to make them do it? For us, yes. Um, I have colleagues in management, actually, um, who have been working with um, part of the education department at the BIC is something called UBIC Borderlines, which is an award-winning um, group that works with marginalised young people. Um, and they've been doing a project on volunteering. Um, um, they put on, um, last year, a, a little tiny performance uh, and I've been working with the National Council for Voluntary Organisations. So, so yes, the, those partnerships are spreading. And we also had um, was a couple of spin-offs, I guess, from our project as well. We also got an AHRC network jointly with King's down here um, on creativity and later life. So we, we ran an 18-month um, networking project as well. And we're also linked with, through the big national programme that we're part of, a, a sister project in Canada um, that runs out of the University of Alberta that works with a group called Jerry Actors and Friends, um, which is a, is a much longer established intergenerational company. So there is, you know, it's like anything. There are, once, you, once you're in the network, or you know, once you're in the networks, it's amazing how much is going yeah. on, actually. Uh, both nationally and internationally, but the knowledge transfer stuff is absolutely what the what the, our follow-on project is about. Yeah, there's a, a performative social science news group that I started a long time ago. Now it's a couple, say about three or three fifty people around the world, um, mostly for announcements. And then there's a Facebook group for that, which is more chatty or personal news, stuff like that, and um, um, there's also uh, a special issue on performative social science in the journal FQS, the online journal, which has uh, 42 <coughs> articles from five countries in three different languages, um, the largest issue they ever produced, which is film in it and photographs and all kinds of dance and well, not people actually dancing, but the articles about dance. Um, there's a group out of Alberta again, and they're doing a lot of good stuff there. Yeah. It's poetry-based. It's international again going on. So there's really a lot of um, really good resources uh, bubbling up around this kind of work. On a personal level, uh, several PhD students I work with are using this in within as part of their dissemination plan or part of their research are using arts-based uh, methods. There's uh, new people I'm supervising sitting in the room who I'll mention. Where'd she go? Oh. <laughs> and, um, so yeah, but it, it takes time. I mean, you know, I, I, there was a point where someone said, are you going to write a book about all this? And I thought, well, I could write a book or I could organize things for other people to bring people together. And that's that's what I've worked on for about five years, trying to... The last conference we had at Bournemouth for Qualitative Research, over 40% of the abstracts submitted were performative social science. We did. So it really made... It was incredible, and it was covered by B BBC News. And so 
it's growing and, and it's really becoming um, a lot of people involved. Um, any final comments, there? Yeah, um, I left the <coughs> university shortly after this project finished, so in terms of did we influence people, I'm not really sure. I'd love to say yes. But what I do know is, I mean, you know that sort of the BBC and Media City and Salford now, a lot of stuff moved up there. Wealth of opportunity for people in that area should they wish to take it up. Whether they are or not, I don't know. But if they could, they should. And they could. Okay, we're out of time. Uh, thank you everybody for coming to this Literary Festival event and for all your really insightful comments and questions. And uh, all that's left to do is just thanks to our lovely speakers, Miriam and Gareth, for their inspiring projects. Thank you. Thank you.